Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, this day as we ponder resurrection, may we see all of the little places in our lives where you are bringing new life, where we are being born again and again and again. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Between the end of Christmastide and the beginning of our next church calendar season, Lent, each year the church observes this season called Epiphany. Epiphany is about light, the light of the divine breaking into our world, illuminating, bringing vision. The season starts with the star, right? The star that leads the Magi to Christ in Bethlehem, and it ends with the transfiguration, this dazzling display of Christ's glory on the mountaintop. Divine light, light in the life of Jesus that reveals the hidden presence of God all around us. So I think it's fitting that this epiphany, we are exploring what I like to call the Christian mysteries. Incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity. Throughout its long history, the Christian community has pondered this set of mysteries which are drawn from the life of Jesus. Mystery. This word in its ancient sense points towards something that is hidden, this dawning awareness that unfolds only slowly as we ponder, as we muse, as we meditate upon it. In this sense, these Christian treasures, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity, are not fixed dogmas with a singular meaning. But that's how they've often been presented to us, right? I mean, uh, for many of us, we grew up with the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the trinity, historical events, one and done, doctrines about Jesus that either you do believe or you do not believe. But of course, this isn't how the church has actually lived with these ideas through the centuries. We have kept circling them circling these mysteries, unfolding their meaning, and asking if incarnation is part of the Christian story, then what does incarnation tell us about this world that we find ourselves in today? If atonement is part of the Christian story, then what does atonement tell us about this world that we are living in today? If resurrection is part of the Christian story, then what does resurrection tell us about this world that we find ourselves in today? And if Trinity is part of the Christian story, then what does Trinity tell us about this world, this place, this life where we find ourselves today? 
In this series, we are exploring how each of these evocative images continues to disclose new meaning today as we hold this story of Jesus in conversation with our evolving understandings of justice, of goodness, of reality itself. This week, we're turning our attention to the mystery of resurrection. Resurrection, new life after death. Just starting from a literary perspective, okay? If we hold together the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian New Testament together as a unit, there is this movement of plot across the whole. There's this movement, there's a setting, inciting incident, rising action to a climax and resolution. And despite the wide variety of genres and centuries that are spanned in the Bible, it becomes really clear really quickly that the New Testament holds resurrection as the climax of the story, the peak event which answers the problem which was posed by the inciting incident. Structurally, we notice that the New Testament canon is organized to start with four Gospels. Have you ever wondered, well, you know, why are there four of them? It seems a little repetitive. Well, there's this, despite all the variations of perspective, there is this repetition in how they all come to align in their ending. So it's like driving home a point with a hammer. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection resurrection. It's like a bell tolling to tell you what time is it? The time is resurrection. Resurrection is the hinge on which everything turns. And in the rest of the New Testament, we see this constant return to resurrection as the climactic event. In Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon that we have recorded at all in the New Testament, Peter's whole argument turns on the resurrection This Jesus God raised up, and of that, all of us disciples are witnesses. Paul's writings constantly circle the resurrection, so much so that in 1 Corinthians he can write, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That is to say, Paul thinks the whole thing turns on this idea of resurrection. And of course, when we turn to the end of the New Testament, the last word in the last book is not death, but life. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples, and God will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Okay, so, literarily, at least, resurrection is the climax, the answer to the inciting incident of Scripture. Now, we're going to get in a moment to what that inciting incident was, but what does this mean for us? For many of us raised in the Christian faith, resurrection was posed completely as an answer to a problem that's going to come later, right? What happens when I die? Where am I going? It's then. Like the old song says, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away, right? (laughs) Resurrection just means life after 
we die. Life wins. And that's, that's good news. I mean, I, I like that. But what I want to consider is, what would resurrection have to say to us here, now, today? If resurrection is so central, can it really just be something by and by? Now, please, don't hear me diminishing belief in a resurrection by and by. We'll, we'll loop back to that later. But it seems important to me to name that capital D, death, you know, the end of life as we know it, is not the only death that we as humans face. Far from it. As we journey through our lives as humans, we encounter so many tiny deaths in our experience. And I think it's worth asking if resurrection really is this climactic moment in our sacred story, then can a resurrection really have nothing to say, no meaning to give to these many deaths we all endure? The loss of a job. What does resurrection say to that? The loss of a dream. What does resurrection say to that? The loss of a relationship. What does resurrection say to that? The loss of a community. What does resurrection say to that? The ending of a chapter, the closing of a season, the change that disrupts and disorganizes our world. These are also deaths. Now, not all endings, to be sure, are completely tragic, right? The last child leaves home for college. That's not totally tragic, uh, you know, but a beautiful season of parenting does end. You move to a new opportunity, but you have to say goodbye to a treasured place. Childhood gives way to adolescence, gives way to adulthood. In all these changes, there is good, but even here there can be real loss, real ending. What can resurrection say to how we live those losses here and now? I think one of the challenges that these many deaths that we face pose to us is how we as humans tend to react to loss. When we experience real loss, we tend to say, I'm not doing that again, never again. And we put up barriers. We come up with protective strategies. We buffer to make ourselves invulnerable next time. Nine years ago, right about this time of year, I was building up the courage to come out publicly as gay. And because I worked at a non-affirming church, that meant resigning from my vocation as a pastor. And because I lived in the church parsonage, it meant moving out of my home. And because my whole community was that church, it meant losing everybody I knew. And I did. On May 15th, 2015, I came out to my church. I resigned, and within a month, I lost my job, my vocation, my home, and my community. Just gone. So much death. Now, I'm proud of the courage it took to get there, to face all that loss, but you know what I didn't really foresee in that process is how I would start to build up walls to make sure I didn't get hurt again. And those walls were all attempts at control. I mean, this time, now that I work at Pearl Church, well, if I'm just perfect, if I don't need anything from any one of you, 
if I'm absolutely invulnerable, if I'm exactly what all of you want me to be, if I don't make any mistakes of any kind, if I don't let myself get too close to anybody, well, then I won't lose it all again. And if I do, it won't hurt as much, right? It's taken a lot of work for me, a lot of therapy for me to lower these defenses here and to begin to trust again. See, this is what I'm talking about. What we tend to do in response to the many little deaths we experience in our lives is we try to manage them. We try to control them. We develop strategies. I can, if I can just be the perfect student, the perfect spouse, the perfect friend, the perfect employee, the perfect homeowner, if I can do this all right, I won't lose it. What's interesting to me is that this desire to be in control is the inciting incident of Scripture. Remember I said earlier, resurrection is a response, a climax. It's a response to an inciting incident. Way back in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve are grabbing the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, what's going on here is that we're seeing humanities grasping after wisdom. Wisdom grasping. If we can just know, if we can just know what's right, what's wrong, if we can just know what we're supposed to do, well, then we'll be like God, which means we'll be invulnerable. We'll be buffered from anything bad ever happening. And of course, what's the next fruit they would grab for? The tree of life. No death, no loss. This is the irony of human existence. There's this thing at the core of us that drives us onto a path to falling apart, which is our desire to control, to buffer ourselves, to become invulnerable, to strain so we never have to face loss. We never have to face death. Because we come to see endings and losses and vulnerability as totally unacceptable, as dangerous, as just bad. And so we close ourselves off. If this is the inciting incident, if the tension that's explored in the scriptures and in our lives is our very human desire to grab at wisdom, to protect ourselves, to be in control, and the consequences of that self-protection, then what might resurrection as the climactic event have to say to us here, now and today? What does resurrection have to say to me and my anxious scramble to protect myself from ever being hurt again? What does it have to say to you right in the places that you want to grasp at control and avoid hurt, loss, death? Well, if wisdom grasping is the inciting incident, I think resurrection then gives us a different way of being in the world, a lens to see the world which shows us every ending contains a beginning. In every death, there is the hope of new life. Resurrection as a central climactic mystery tells us how the world is. It's a lens to help us see the world as just constantly bringing new life out of death. I mean, this is at the heart of Jesus' teaching and example. In John 12, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
with resurrection as our lens, we're invited to start looking, searching out all the ways that the deaths in our life, the small ones and the big ones, are like seeds that begin to make way for new life. And when we look this way, we start to see it everywhere. I mean, spring and summer give way to the death of fall and winter only to burst forth again. Billions of years ago, the collapse of a distant star created immense pressure and heat and burst outward in a spray of elements that over eons made their way to this earth and into your bones and made your very life possible. And one day, those same elements will pass again into the earth and burst forth into new kinds of life again and again and again. It's happening all around us. Wendell Berry writes about this in his Sabbath poems. He writes, Another Sunday morning comes, and I resume the standing Sabbath of the woods, where the finest blooms of time return. And where no path is worn, but wears its makers out at last, and disappears in leaves of fallen seasons. The tracked rut fills and levels. Here nothing grieves in the risen season. Past life lives in the living. Resurrection is in the way each maple leaf commemorates by its kind, by connection, outreaching understanding. The bud swells, opens, makes seed, falls, is well, being becoming what it is. What if the whisper of falling maple leaves and blue bell buds, collapsing stars, and the very death and resurrection of Christ is telling us death is always just a stage on the way to our becoming? Death is just a stage on the way to becoming. Resurrection as a lens for this life tells us this is what the world is really like. In our fear and vulnerability, we assume that death is death is death. It's bad, and no one is going to help us if we don't control it. But resurrection whispers, in fact, this world is flooded with divine love, making new beginnings out of every ending. And if that's what's really going on here, then all of our attempts to maintain control, our attempts to grasp wisdom, to be perfect and make sure we never face loss, ironically, those serve only to close us off from the new beginnings that are beckoning. They serve to close us off from the gift of being born again and again and again. What might resurrection be whispering in our losses? The loss of one dream that opens us up vulnerably to reimagine and find a new path forward. The loss of a relationship that beckons us to the hard internal work of healing, of growing, of finding new relational patterns of ways of being. The loss of a job that makes us reimagine ourselves, that prompts us into a new direction. I mean, isn't this how we as humans really learn, really grow? Not by seizing knowledge and control and doing it perfectly, but in learning anything, we have to try and fail and try and fail, die and rise, die and rise. 
I say frequently up here, I'm a, I love baking. I'm a baker. I like it a lot. I watch Bake Off all the time. And because I watch Bake Off all the time, I think, I could do that. <laughs> I'm not going to make that mistake. Susan, you left your dough out. You're never going to get layers. Your butter's <laughs> melting, right? And yesterday, I was making some hand pies, and I really screwed them up, like really badly. And my dog knows when I'm mad because she hears the words coming out of my mouth and she goes and hides. So, yeah. <laughs> Dying and rising. Dying and rising. We fail, we try, we try again, we rise again. This is the pattern of all change, all growth, all transformation. See, resurrection gives us the hope that we need to stay open in our moments of loss, to see them as invitations to becoming. Because in the light of the Christ story, every death is a stage in the process of becoming. Now, to be clear, to be clear, grief is still grief. Loss is still loss. We don't have to pretend and play a game and say, no, no, that was good because it brought new things. No, a, a bad thing can be a bad thing. And, and, in the midst of that, there may be a seed of something new. This is the wisdom between, behind the ancient monastic teaching of conversio. Conversio, Benedict, the father of Western monasticism, called all of his monks to profess the vow to conversio, which is not conversion in the way we mean it, right? This like one time I convert, I am going to change my life. Conversio was rather the commitment to being born again and again and again, staying open to the many changes we would be invited to throughout our lives. Always, Benedict wrote, always we begin again. Because resurrection tells us that divine love is always inviting us into something new. Now, some of you might be wondering, as we come to a close, what about capital R resurrection? What about the big one, you know, by and by I'll fly away and all that? Well, let me just suggest that if now, if here, in all of our little deaths, we discover that over and over again, divine love is making all things new, that the pattern of everything is dying and rising, dying and rising, if we find that even in the middle of our great losses, the divine is bringing new ways of being, that resurrection really is a good lens for looking at the world, well, then I think that gives us some good reason to hope that God will just go right on making life out of death, on and on. I mean, if this is what God is like, if making seeds that go into the earth and burst forth into new life is really the heart of everything, well then, we have the best reason to anticipate more of the same. But the point is, the way we really live into that hope is when we come to see that resurrection is already the lens through which to see and understand our lives here and now. It's not just the way things will be. It is a way things already are. I don't know what losses you're carrying in with you today. I don't know what deaths you have experienced. I don't know the strategies you have internalized to protect yourself, to buffer yourself, to control. But perhaps today, we might hold our stories of loss with a little more compassion, 
Maybe we'd be kind to the grief we've experienced and the ways we've tried to cope with it. And maybe even begin to ask and wonder where and how divine love is inviting us right in those deaths to rise again, to find new life, to see the seed bursting into something new, something unexpected, something beautiful today. Will you pray with me? God, as we ponder resurrection, I pray that we would be open, open to all your invitations to be born again and again and again. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.